0: Well, good morning. Well, it's a pleasure to once again come and open God's Word with you Uh, this morning. We're going to be continuing our series uh, through the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading Acts chapter 15, verse 30, right through to chapter 16, verse 10. That's Acts chapter 15, verse 30, right through to chapter 16, verse 10. This is what it says. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, how shall we describe the passage that lies open before us this morning? I must admit I stared at it for many hours this week pulling my hair out because initially the best description that I could come up with was to say that this passage is just a bag of licorice all sorts. In other words, on the surface at least, there doesn't appear to be a major overarching theme or theological thread that links these verses together. I mean granted they're all part of the same narrative but for the most part in terms of what they're teaching it seems that what we have here is just a series of series of unconnected vignettes, just small, isolated episodes in the life of the Apostle Paul that don't seem to cohere cohere together particularly well. And I think there's quite a bit of truth to that. You'll probably feel that throughout the course of the sermon today. There is a diverse range of topics that we'll be covering. But having said all of that, as I peered at it for long enough, I began to think to myself, maybe that's just the point. Yes, this is a series of three or four separate episodes in the life of Paul, but if you look closely, each one of them specifically highlights one aspect of the ordinary, day in, day out, unglamorous and even ugly realities of ministry life. You see, Paul and Barnabas have lived out the exciting expedition that was the first missionary journey. They boarded a ship and they crossed the Mediterranean witnessing and seeing the radical revival amidst the Gentiles. They've experienced the adrenaline rush that was the experience of fighting off a false gospel culminating in the events of the Jerusalem council. But now their course, at least for a moment, as they transition between the first and second missionary journey, it's going to drop down a gear or two. They move from the heights of the new and the extraordinary back down to the planes of the familiar and the ordinary. Years ago, I was sitting in a Bible college lecture down in Brisbane. and One of the seasoned professors looked out at a classroom full of eager young students like me. And he shared some seasoned wisdom that I've never forgotten. He said, listen, we live at a time in the evangelical church when every man and his dog wants to plant a church. But do you know what you call a church plan after two years? A church. It's a church. And what this seasoned pastor was getting at is that too often we can look at ministry and missions and church plants through zealous lenses and think that Christian life is just one big exciting journey along the mountaintops. When in fact, most of the time it involves that day in, day out, hard, slog, long-term shepherding of souls in the context of the ordinary rhythms and ordinary interruptions of life. We need to know this morning that the Apostle Paul and his comrades are not just flash-in-the-pan evangelists who just move on to the next thing like kids sifting through a toy box. No, they're in it for the long term and they take steps and set up structures to ensure that the churches they've planted throughout their journeys are established and brought to full maturity in Christ and that's often where the really hard work is, right? Now, if there's an underlying theme running through these passages, if I think that would be precisely it. Take a look with me at the following verses, they should be on screen. Acts 15:32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 15:35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, they didn't go anywhere teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. 1541, and he went through Syria and Seleucia, okay, those are places he's already been to, strengthening the churches. 164 through 5, as they went on their way through the cities, again, these are cities they've already been to, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who are in Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Did you notice the thread? (laughs) It's only subtle, but Luke is showing us that in addition to the occasional mountaintops of extraordinary ministry experiences, we are generally called to spend most of our time playing our part in the ordinary work of strengthening our fellow believers in the context of the local church. As we put our hands to this plough, this occasionally extraordinary but generally ordinary plough, Luke tells us that there are four realities we need to prepare ourselves for. Some are more pleasant than others. Controversy, conciliation, closed doors, and curious callings. I worked really hard to find things and start with C, right? <coughs> so, first cab off the rank, let's look at controversy, verses 36 to 40. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, re- we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. There's that follow-up piece. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. If you can remember back to Acts chapter 13, which Graham and I covered about three or four weeks ago, you'll remember that John Mark was the assistant of Paul and Barnabas as they went on their first missionary journey. He stayed with them throughout their travels on Cyprus, probably getting delegated the mediocre jobs like carrying the bags, but nonetheless, he was their assistant. And when it, when it came time to board a ship and continue their journey and make their way over to southern Galatia, John Mark tapped out and he just made his way back to Jerusalem. And in Paul's assessment, that wasn't good enough. John Mark was letting the team down. And so when it came time to assemble a team for the second missionary journey, Paul went into football coach mode. He whispers into the ear of the list manager and says, I want to cut a player. In his assessment, John Mark was unreliable. He couldn't finish what he started and he lacked the necessary perseverance to be an effective missionary. But then Barnabas, on the other hand, who was a blood relative of John Mark, either his cousin or possibly his uncle, said, no, Paul, I understand the kid made a mistake, but we've got to give him a second chance. Now, look, granted, he's a little bit undercooked, but that kid's got god given potential and I want to back him to get it right next time. We've got to give him a second chance. And then we read those sobering words. there in verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. You can try and water this down all you like, but the term sharp disagreement there could translate violent explosion. <laughs> this was an ugly, heated argument between Paul and Barnabas. Now, it begs the question, right, I mean, Who was right? Paul or Barnabas? What do you think? The truth is the text doesn't say. As Luke pens this account, he isn't trying to pick a side. And if you and I were summoned to do duty on this particular case, we'd probably struggle to come up with a unanimous decision amongst us all. I mean, in in favour of Paul, I think he makes a fair point about the unreliability of John Mark. And we could cite the wisdom of Proverbs to back him up. For example, Proverbs 25, 19. Trusting in a treacherous man in in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Paul could be thinking in those lines. Paul's hesitation then is valid. But then in favour of Barnabas, I'm sure we can all just see a little bit of ourselves in John Mark. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us can say that we've never dropped the ball following Jesus? The story of John Mark is really just a mirror, right? So contrary to Paul, Barnabas adopts a posture of grace and wants to give him a second chance. I mean, is it any shock that the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement? <laughs> We're seeing that play out right here. Listen, I've, I've heard it said, and I think it's right, that most of the time, The reason that ministry partnerships can break up or come into conflict is not because of personality issues or theological misalignment. Though granted, those things can happen. Usually, ministry partnerships break up or come into conflict as a result of values clashes. That's what's happening here. You see, theologically speaking, Paul and Barnabas both shake hands, okay? They've both signed off on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm sure that after years of serving in the missionary trenches together, they've developed an incredible friendship. I don't doubt that for a second. But when push comes to shove, Paul strongly values precision, while Barnabas strongly values development. And it's at this point in their journey they realize, they discover that they have an incompatible ministry philosophy. And the result is they part ways. Commenting on these verses, the late R.C. Sproul said it this way. The great heroes and heroines of the faith are described in the history of redemption with warts and all. (laughs) And listen, if you and I are going to navigate the terrain of normal church life without becoming too disenchanted, we're going to have to expect some warts of our own. I'm not saying we should go on a parade every time we see a ministry partnership break up because we've got biblical precedent for it in Acts 15. What a disaster that would be, right? But we do need to brace ourselves that on this side of eternity, there is an unfortunate normalness to this kind of thing. And I suspect many of you can testify to this reality. Matthew Henry said it this way. Even those that are united to one and the same Jesus and sanctified by one and the same Spirit have different apprehensions, different opinions, different views and different sentiments in points of prudence. It will be so while we are in this state of darkness and imperfection. We shall never be all of a mind till we come to heaven where light and love are perfect. So, at best, we can say that they agreed to disagree. Paul took Silas with him instead. Silas has demonstrated his usefulness off the back of the Jerusalem council and they headed north. But Barnabas takes John Mark under his wing and they head west to Cyprus where Barnabas was from. The great partnership of Paul and Barnabas has come to an end. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, is, is the situation all dire? Let me ask you this morning, how many missions teams were there prior to this argument? One. How many are there now? There's two. Now again, this is not to applaud the disagreement. No doubt there would have been sin involved that needed to be repented of, but it does show us how God has sovereignly choreographed and sovereignly redeemed this situation and worked everything out for his glory and the continued spread of the gospel. Furthermore, look at these words that Paul later wrote to Timothy. These are some of the last words ever penned by the Apostle Paul before he was executed. They're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, Has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to 101 Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Look at this. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. You see, Paul may not have appreciated Mark's value at the time, but coming towards the end of his life, we know that he appreciated him greatly he says he is very useful to me for ministry this is a beautiful picture of reconciliation so as we navigate the ordinary rhythms of church life we should expect controversy but we should also expect conciliation look at 16 1 through 4 it says paul came also to derby and to lystra a disciple was there named timothy the son of a jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a greek Tuning in last week, I mean, didn't we just finish up the Jerusalem Council? Paul made a bit of noise last week. Didn't he recently write the epistle to the Galatians? I thought Paul made his position pretty clear that salvation is not contingent on circumcision, but on placing our trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that anyone who said otherwise was promoting a false gospel. But here he is giving Timothy the snip. They have got a curious relationship, but... This seems like quite the contradiction. And it becomes even more striking when verse 4 says, they delivered the decisions of the Jerusalem council as they made their way through the cities. He's passing around a letter that rebukes those who promote the necessity of circumcision, and yet here he is performing one. What's going on here? Well, Timothy's mother, whose name was Eunice, we know that from elsewhere in the New Testament, she was a Jewish woman who had married a pagan Gentile. It's not the sort of marriage you'd typically get away with closer to Palestine, but in this part of the world, away from the temple, there was a less rigid degree of social separation. And so, socially speaking, you could get away with a marriage like this one. But because Timothy's father was head of the home and a Greek, he did not permit Timothy to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. You see, Gentiles often viewed circumcision as just a barbaric mutilation of the flesh. They did not get it. So Timothy grew up around Judaism via his mother, but he was never circumcised himself. And he would have been considered by the local Jews as something of an apostate. And the locals knew who he was. They thought he was something of a local renegade. But then Paul sees Timothy. He's this reputable convert to Christianity, and he wants to recruit him to his missions team. And part of his mission is to go to synagogues. But he knows if he takes Timothy with him in his uncircumcised state, he wouldn't even be allowed to enter the synagogue in the first place because they would have perceived Paul as a supporter of apostasy. And they would have completely disregarded him no matter what he'd said, no matter how good the gospel news was. So he circumcises Timothy not because it's necessary for salvation... Because it's the only way he'll gain an audience with the Jews who need to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. RC Sproul said it. Paul made a decision based not on theology or ethics, but on strategy. His decision was based on prudence, not on theological necessity. Paul is not being inconsistent. He knows the difference between strategy and salvation. Look at what he writes in Galatians 2 when he describes one of his visits to Jerusalem. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in despite our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, the situation with Titus was that the purity of the gospel was threatened. But the situation with Timothy was that the reception of the gospel was threatened. Listen, I'd probably need a burning bush and a series of angelic visitations to do what Timothy did here. I mean, even then, I'd probably be struggling. But this text does make me think about the kind of gospel compromises I'd be willing to make so that new audiences can hear the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Listen, I, I don't believe it's necessary personally to wear robes when I, when I preach. I'm pretty content wearing smart, casual. But if I had the opportunity to preach the gospel in a context where robes were the cultural norm, I, I'd probably go for it, suit me up. I'd rather them hear the gospel and be graciously saved by Jesus than for my attire to be a stumbling block for them. Or or suppose suppose God called me to to plan a church in a high crime, low socioeconomic, poorly educated area. I mean, would I consider changing which version of the Bible I was using so that they could understand it, make it more simple? Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely think about that. Would I possibly change my address so that I could be more pastorally accessible in that context? Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly give that some prayer and some thought. And, and I don't know, if I can just descend in some, into some stereotypes for a moment, and I don't even think these stereotypes are true anymore, but would I even consider maybe getting like a, a sleeve tattoo so that I could blend in a little bit, like, so I wouldn't be perceived as like a preppy aristocrat who went to Bon Uni? Maybe, like, I don't, I don't know. I think it looked look pretty ridiculous on me, but maybe. <laughs> what might it be for you? Look, for some of you, I know, you harbor missionary ambitions overseas, but maybe you need to consider that in order for you to be an effective missionary, you, you might have to learn not only just a new language, but all the particulars and intricacies of an entirely different culture. It might affect the clothes you wear, the places you live, and the food you eat. that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, let's be clear. Here's what this text doesn't mean. It doesn't mean I go and get drunk with the drunkards, that by all means I might save some. Okay, it... it Some people have argued that way, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that I go get high with the potheads or that I commit adultery with the adulterers. No, this passage reflects Paul's missionary flexibility. And to paraphrase D.A. Carson, it's not about the flexibility of the message, but of the messenger. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So we can expect controversy, we can expect conciliation. And finally, we can expect closed doors and curious callings. Look at verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. If you were at the project uh, last year, you'll know that I conducted a How to Read the Bible course on Zoom last year. And because I did it via Zoom, it meant that some of my substandard OneNote drawings are featured in the curriculum. One such drawing is now on screen for you. I do portrait work if anyone's interested. Uh. Now, the journey that we've been following in our passage today is the one marked by the purple line. I'm going to see if this works. Purple line, so it is Jerusalem down here. That's Syria and Antioch where the dispute arose. And then Paul, if it will work, what's he doing? He's just heading west. Now, if you're continuing to head west, what's the next most logical place to preach the gospel? Anyone from the crowd? Asia. Asia, yeah. That is the next most logical place to preach the gospel. You keep heading west. And so what this shows us is that Paul is simply using basic logic and reason to determine where he should travel next. He knows he's been uniquely called to preach to the Gentiles, but though he has a certain oh, he certainly has a category for receiving miraculous direction from time to time, it's not as though that constitutes his entire life compass. Okay, he, he doesn't have to stand motionless asking for prophetic guidance every five minutes he just keeps heading west. You see, sadly, I grew up in a church context where employing logic and reason in decision-making was just about frowned upon, Uh, to the point, I kid you not, where it was taught that we should pray and ask the Holy Spirit precisely which petrol station we should fill up at, lest we fill up at a petrol station outside the will of God. I'm not making this stuff up, And as you can imagine, this line of thinking became quite crippling for people as they sought miraculous leading for the most trivial decisions in life. But Paul, employing the faculty of his mind, simply says, okay, there are Gentiles in Asia, I'm called to preach to Gentiles, those are my marching orders, let's get after it, let's head west." But then verses 6 and 7 present and they go on to say that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, even though that was the next logical step. And then after diverting northward toward um, the Spirit of Jesus, hit him with another roadblock and didn't permit him to go into Bithynia. Now, how exactly did that happen? The text doesn't say. I suspect a number of things could have happened that uh, Luke could say that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. I thought John Stott summed it up pretty well says, but how the Holy Spirit did his preventive work on these two occasions, we can only guess. It may have been through giving the missionaries a strong, united, inward impression, or through some outward circumstance like illness, Jewish opposition, or illegal ban, or through the utterance of a Christian prophet, perhaps Silas himself. Whichever way it happened, in Christianese, we would typically call this God closing a door, right? Have you ever had that? How did you feel about it when it happened? <laughs> about three years ago, I interviewed for a pastoral position up north. I was pretty excited about the opportunity. It was the first pastoral job I ever went for. And they even flew me up for the interview and invited me to preach a sermon. I was pretty excited for this opportunity. But I found out later, this is after they told me I didn't get the job, that the day I arrived up north, a pastor with years of experience, who they had been begging to be their pastor for years, finally decided on the day I arrived that he would be their pastor. On the day I arrived. So here I was, preaching my heart out, hoping I was going to get a job at the conclusion of the sermon, but the elders were just checking their emails and they already had their man. Now, in retrospect, it was pretty kind of them to let me finish the sermon. But have you ever had that? Those moments when God comes along and just deliberately tips over your apple cart and frustrates all your plans, they can be some of the most disenchanting moments in the Christian journey, right? Especially when you get a few of them back to back. I've prayed some pretty gnarly prayers in those moments. But here we're reminded that despite the initial sting of such disappointment, we can learn to rejoice equally in both his prohibitions and his permissions because he typically employs both to guide us towards his will for our lives. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. When God closes doors, it is not because he has nothing for us to do. He does not want us to take a vacation. It is to keep us from getting into a work to which we are not called in order that we might be saved for a work to which we are. You see, getting the gospel to Macedonia was God's priority. Oh, the gospel would get to Asia eventually. The the rest of the New Testament will testify to that. But on this particular journey, God had decided that the priority was Macedonia. And it's fascinating, though slightly anachronistic, that is to say it doesn't um, take into account time, that taking the gospel to Macedonia would mean that the gospel would now reach Europe. Now, it wasn't called Europe back then, but this is a significant geographical moment in redemptive history. John Stott, again, summed it up well. He does that often. With the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Europe became the first Christian continent and was until fairly recently the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world, we can see what an epoch-making development this was. It was from Europe that in due course the gospel found out, fanned out to the great continents of Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America and Oceania and so reached the ends of the earth. God is seeing to it, frustrating the plans of the Apostle Paul so that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth via Europe. To employ some more Christian ease, we usually describe this phenomenon in one of two ways. We either refer to it as God opening a door... Or we use that more hipster six-word phrase we've all been prone to use, it was such a God thing. We all say it, let's admit it. That phrase is going to appear in a systematic theology volume one day. The Doctrine of Providence, subtitle, it was such a God thing. But as I alluded to above, what we need to see at the closure of this passage is the balance that Paul demonstrates when it comes to how he makes decisions and how he determines God's will for his life. He's open to the miraculous when he's using his mind and he uses his mind when discerning the miraculous. Look at how he engages, even with the vision he receives there in verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we... Okay, that's, that's plural. So this is Paul, Silas and Luke. Luke has now joined them on the journey. Whenever you see we statements in Acts, it means Luke was there. So this is a, a team sport Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us plural to preach the gospel to them. Now the word "concluding" there implies that he didn't just take the vision at face value. He processed it and interpreted it and discerned it, one, in the context of the closed doors he'd just been confronted with, and two, in collaboration with Silas and Paul and Silas and Luke. As Matthew Henry put it, when they came to compare notes, they found them to be the same. Discernment is often a team sport. Listen, this text is a bit of a bag of licorice all sorts. And I'm not sure which part of the sermon stood out for you today. Perhaps for some of us, we needed to be reminded of the sobering realities of Christian conflict and controversy. Perhaps for others we needed to be reminded of how to correctly discern God's leading in our life. But my prayer this morning is that we can observe through the narrative of Acts the preciousness of the gospel and that God is sovereignly coordinating the spread of this message through crooked sticks like you and me so that he can redeem a people to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. That in this grand deposit of truth that you have given us, you have you've kept the warts on the pages. You didn't tidy it up. You've shown the apostles and their comrades for who they were and what they did. Lord, we read of how at certain times the apostle Peter looked like he was going to deny the gospel. And Lord, today we've read how Paul and Barnabas had an unfortunate separation. Lord Jesus, would you anchor our hearts so deeply in you, in the truth of the gospel, and in the beauty of the bride of Christ that is the church, that if and when we encounter such controversy... We would not be too disenchanted. Father, for those of us who have ambitions for church planning and ministry and overseas missions, Lord, would you ready our hearts for the context to which you would call us, that we would begin to count the cost for what kind of gospel compromises we may have to make so that new audiences can hear the gospel. And Lord God, I pray that we would learn corporately and individually to discern your will, both with the faculty of our mind that you've given us and with those occasional miraculous moments where you guide us by your spirit. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done for us in the gospel. For that, we will be eternally grateful. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship.